Hello and welcome to this, the first Capgemini podcast about training. There's five of us on the call today. We all work in within the BTC practice, the Business Transformation Consulting Practice. We're five senior training practitioners and we thought it'd be useful to introduce ourselves first of all and then we'll talk a little bit more about what we hope to achieve with the podcast as we move forward. So my name is Clive Barber. I've been in training in one form or another for over 20 years. I'm currently working within the public sector, designing and delivering training for a GDPR implementation. Paul, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Duggins. I've been at Capgemini now for the uh, best part of six years or so, but I've been uh, a training practitioner for many, many more years than that. Far too many for me to remember, actually. Uh, I'm currently working with a so it's a rather large but well-known uh, player in the recruitment market. And it's quite interesting because we are showcasing some new learning technology, which we'll maybe talk about on this podcast or perhaps later on. Thanks, Paul. Mandy, do you want to go next? Yes. Hello. My name's Mandy Lenheim. I've been a training practitioner for, this is my 19th year at Capgemini. And um, currently I'm working on two projects One of them is a project involving a production line in a factory, um, namely an ice cream factory. And another one, the other project I'm working on is in utilities. Thank you very much. Ollie? Hi, uh, I'm Ollie Button. Um, I have been working in the training field for getting on for 15 years now, four or five of which have been with Capgemini. Currently, I'm working for a large transport client, and we're implementing a uh, security patrolling tracking software package, and we're particularly tasked with doing the training around that. So we're doing some online learning and coaching and mobile training and things like that. Thanks, Ollie. And finally, Mark. Thanks, Clive. So yes, my name is Mark Holden. Uh, I started working in the training area circa 2001-2002. The project that I'm working on at the moment is the one with Mandy, where we're going to be involved in assisting uh, an ice cream manufacturer. But I've recently been working on another project for around about 15 months or so with a very large industrial organisation with some very complex technology that they've been working with to create something that keeps us all safe at night. I think what's quite interesting is we've all been involved in training for, for, for a very long time. And it kind of makes me wonder what, I know what I like about it, but it'd be interesting to to hear how you guys actually got into training and why you're still doing it. What do you like most about it? I think for me, thinking back, and it still rings true, is that originally I was in more of a technology-based role, but I just enjoyed helping people and, and sort of giving support to people. And, and it, it became apparent to me that when I was helping fix people's technical issues, I was spending more and more time sort of talking about how they could use systems in a better way. That sort of, that progressed. And then eventually I thought, and I talked to various people that I work with and so on. And it was suggested to me, why don't I branch off in and just go into training? And sort of I've been in there ever since, really. For me, it was that side of it. Excellent. I think I'm a little bit shallower than you because I was working at a... um a company that supplied financial research information to market analysts and, and traders. And it was just all the cool kids worked in the training department. So that's where I wanted to go. Mandy? I fell into it purely by accident. I'd spent 16 years working at BT and left, took a redundancy package from BT and got a job within four days at Capgemini in training. Had no idea what consulting was about or training 
and literally fell into it and very fortunately and 19 years later I'm still here but I think what I enjoy, enjoy about it is the fact that all throughout all my career I've always worked with people and I think if you were to ask me what my why was it would be people so that covers sort of training and helping them. Great thanks a lot. Ollie? Uh, yeah similar to um, both uh, Paul and Mandy I think really so I, I didn't choose to be a trainer I didn't dream of it as a kid I just uh, Ended up being good at using the software package I was uh, using in my job at the time. Internal training job came up, so I thought I'd go for it. And that was, yeah, about 15 years ago. So never look back, I guess. But yeah, I, I enjoy the, the people side of it as well. So I think you need a decent understanding of technology and processes and all that kind of technical stuff. But really, it's about helping people to do their jobs and, uh, you know, assisting people through that change. So would you say you were primarily a, a technical a technician or a um a trainer uh, a, a trainer really so it's, it's about uh, it's almost like translation i think it's it's you take the technical and you package it up in a way that is uh, digestible for people that don't necessarily have that background so it's you're the kind of intermediary quite often i find but you do need to have a good grounding in both sides well i guess certainly for the work we tend to do obviously capgemini is a very large company and you never quite know what you're going to be doing from one project to the next. So, you know, for example, we do a lot of ERP work with the likes of Oracle and, and SAP, but then you can be doing something completely at a tangent like GDPR, for example, which is what I'm I'm working on now. Yeah, definitely. Um, no two projects are the same, are they? So you can, you can find yourself getting a bit pigeonholed as a specialist in a particular... Uh, software area for example but um, it's you know something something different will always come up and you always need to be ready to learn something new indeed so mark what was your first training gig yeah i mean you have to admit when i was a kid i always wanted to be a policeman but that never quite worked out so the only person or the only people who would give me a job when i left university was hoskins as was which is of course now cap gemini so originally i was working on a service desk i then started supporting one of the particular systems and an opportunity arose to start training in that area and it was just something that I thought yeah I'll, I'll, you know I quite fancy the sound of that I'll give it a try standing up in front of people and so on which obviously was how it was back in sort of 2001 2002 and it went pretty well so not long after that I think it was when I first met Mandy I joined the team uh, and then since then yeah it's, it's it's been a job that I've I've always enjoyed doing and I think it's for two reasons that have already been mentioned really one obviously is is the people side of things it's I think it's what drives all of us. It's being involved with different people on different projects. And then the second element of that is very much that where we work, we're given opportunities to work in very different areas on very different projects. So it gives it that sort of interest and dynamism that that maybe um, some day-to-day jobs just don't do really. So sort of mixing the, the two elements, I think, is, is what keeps keeps me going and keeps me interested. Yeah, so what, what about you other guys? What are, what are the things in training that, that keep you interested in it? So, Randy, you said you've been at Capgemini for 19 years. What, what's the thing or what are the things that keep you working within the training arena? I think for me, it's every project is like starting a new job. Um, I, that, that's the how I felt. Although um, Ollie mentioned about, you know, particular areas of specialism. At, when I first joined Capgemini, I seemed to be the um, person that used to work on all the council projects. And then I sort of jumped to other areas. But it was for me, it was it was starting a new job and just meeting different people and working in different places. And that's that the variety kept me around, really. Is that the same for you, Paul? 
Yeah, essentially, I think uh, one one of the things that I was particularly attracted by when 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 the opportunity came to join Capgemini was the fact that I'd spent the previous sort of uh, eight years or so just purely and simply working from a, a in a training consulting type role, but for a smaller niche consultancy practice that just specialized in one ERP platform, i.e. SAP. So, you know, for all the best will in the world, it was difficult to to sort of have a holistic view of what was going on in, you know, around training across different technologies, the different approaches and so on. So, you know, when I got talking and the opportunity came to join Capgemini, the fact that we're platform agnostic particularly appealed to me. Obviously, that means from time to time you go on an account and you're dealing with a new software package that you're not familiar with. So there's always going to be challenges and you have to stretch yourself. But overall, it's not about the platform, is it? As we all know, it's about, you know, you know, it's about training. It's about learning. It's about the people. And, and, and you know, six years in, essentially, I'm still as happy to be here as I was on day one. You know, so we still have the same challenges and I like the variation of it. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I think the, the thing I still enjoy most is actually doing the training delivery. But you can't do the delivery until you've, do, you've done the design and the, and the development work. And I think one of the, the things that I enjoy most is, is kind of seeing people's reaction, you know, seeing people learn something new through doing proper, engaging training that people actually get something out of. And I think it's still, for me, I think a lot of corporate training is still pretty bad quality. But I think, obviously, the approach and the methodologies that we bring to a training program actually um, make a significant difference to the success of, of most, most sort of the, the big projects that we get involved in. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I wanna, uh, something else that occurs to me, and I, this might be something that's specific to working at a consultancy firm like Capgemini, is the fact that, you know, obviously we work with a, alongside a lot of different colleagues on different accounts. But I often think that it's only really us in the, in the training and learning space that has that overall big picture view of a particular program. And bearing in mind, you know, some of the platforms, the size and scale of what's been implemented for our clients, that gives us a pretty big view of that organization and as the of the program as a whole. So in many cases, I always think it's only the project management team on a particular program and us as trainers. Everybody else is sort of has their head down and he's quite siloed in a particular piece of technology or a particular function. If I think about testing, you know, that's all they do and they just think about testing the system. And similar with the technical people, whereas I I quite like our role because we get to see the, the program as a whole and generally, hopefully, we're there when things happen and things are deployed and we actually see the difference these things make to people. Excellent point. So I think a lot of times people are very sort of uh, process driven. They're, you know, they've got their stage of the process to do. They do the testing, they do the functional design, all that kind of stuff. They, they don't necessarily see it through to the end. So it's us that actually um, it, it equips people to actually use the system because that's sometimes it's sort of a bit of a poor relation in terms of, you know, it's just training at the end. It's not seen as the, a major part of the project sometimes, but it's so vital to any system that people actually use it correctly to make it work. Point. So what, what are the, some of the, um, the key mistakes that people make in, in the large training programs that we tend to work on? I think quite often you'll find um, people develop training that's extremely system-based or process-based and doesn't really take into account the wider context or the business processes around it. So sometimes things might work in a vacuum, but then when you put them into the real world, they don't necessarily take flight in the same way. 
So um, I think it's pretty critical for people to be able to understand them properly, to be able to relate them to their real experience, but also to actually fully test them and make sure that, um, that things do work in, in a real world scenario as well. One thing I see regularly is that uh, within the plans that they're expecting the subject matter experts that are working on the project to actually deliver the training. And that's a real red flag to me because you know full well that just before go live, those people are going to be incredibly busy solving other problems. They're certainly not going to have time to deliver training. And also when when, uh, people talk about training delivery, they're going to use PowerPoint. It always scares the living daylights out of me because you know PowerPoint isn't really a training tool. It's a useful tool, but it shouldn't certainly shouldn't be the, the be-all and end-all in any, any training programme. No, and it does kind of undermine the professionalism of training as well, to a certain extent, if you just sort of think, this person isn't the trainer, but they can just do it. There is a, there is a skill to it and an art to it, and you know, experience is, is vital. So just assuming that someone who has the knowledge can do that job is, is a pretty dangerous assumption, I think. I would agree with that. I think that's an interesting point, and and it's it's prompted much discussion. Uh, and I I'm, I sort of have a, quite a strong opinion on that because the amount of times that I've heard it be said by somebody technical or been speaking to somebody who's technical, and and because they've perhaps fallen on a little bit of hard times and can't find anything a role. I'm not talking necessarily here about people within our organisation within Capgemini. I'm thinking of more around the freelance end of the market, but. What attitude, certainly in the SAP world, always tended to be, well, if you can't find any work configuring the system, you can always just, quote, do a bit of training. I always thought that was unfair and I always pushed back on that because, as, we, as we've already heard, training is a, you know, it's a specialist skill. It takes a certain type of person to deliver good quality training and make sure that people are learning what they need to learn. It's not something that anybody can just drop into and do. So I often feel that our profession if you like is is devalued in the eyes of many and it's a constant battle that I've had I feel that I've had to varying degrees throughout my career I think so as well I think um, training is put to the end and people do not really understand the amount of effort that goes into getting people to actually sit down and do the training and actually learn I've always found that quite astonishing that they say as you said Paul that, that you can do a bit of training but it's not just a bit of training, is it really? There's a lot of effort that goes into it. And I don't think that's, that value is appreciated all the time. The reality is anybody can deliver training, but it, it takes a professional trainer to deliver effective training. Yes, yeah, so, so if you see technical people delivering training, sometimes you, you will find them getting very frustrated that people aren't taking on board what they're trying to put across. They don't sort of, they don't kind of go with their class. They kind of deliver it's more like a presentation style they'll deliver and they'll expect people to take it in but there won't really be any kind of engagement or checking of people's understanding that kind of thing they just kind of deliver it and then if people haven't got it then that's their fault stand there and talk at them what sort of things should people be doing to make their large scale training programs successful well i think one of the key things is again going back to our ideas of the smes is they have to be involved because i always think of us as being magpies basically we go around we're not the experts. We basically steal all the good information that other people have got. And it's absolutely vital that the SMEs and senior management as well at the various clients are invested to give us the time. Because if we don't have the time, then it will literally end up being click, click, click with absolutely no context. And having that context and that business knowledge around it are the things that I think differentiates what we do um, from, from some of the areas where maybe they don't do it quite as well. 
So I think as long as we can get the business on side, get them involved, give us that information, then we can go and take that into something that, you know, really delivers on what they need. I think we've got some dependencies around things like assumptions, because I think many organisations make some massive assumptions around their own workforce, assume, for example, that everybody is fully au okay with all of the technologies out there. And we know in the real world, that's very often not the case. It's around the impacts as well. So how many organisations do we work with where they just totally underestimate the impact of changing people's software systems or whatever it is that we're helping them implement because you know how many times do we hear well they're doing the same thing but in a different system it's fine it's no problem but actually when you do that perhaps if you're not that comfortable with technology if you're not that IT literate that activity is 80% of your daily duties that's a massive impact you know and and we see that and we know that because obviously we face off to people when we're delivering whatever type of training or learning that we are. But I always find that many organisations make some massive incorrect assumptions about it and really don't understand the impacts of what they're doing until it's almost too late. Yeah, good point. So for me, I think the first thing you need to do is is to make sure you understand what the, the business needs are. And then your training should focus on the priorities that the business had. What does the business want to achieve by implementing the new software or, or a new process or, or, or whatever the training in question is. So that should then be the total focus for the, for the training effort. And also then the actual training that you design and deliver needs to be experiential. I don't really like the word, but people basically need to be doing and practicing something. So they need to be to getting, if it's a system, they need to get their hands on the system, a real live system, not a dummy system. Well, yeah, I, I did just want to hark back to the um, training we all went on recently where we all got together with the TAP training. And uh, One of the big things that came out for all of us, I think, was around the evaluation of training, around understanding before you start how it is that you're going to measure success. And that really helps you to kind of focus on, on what it is you're trying to achieve and delivering that in an effective way. But also it's sort of helpful for um, developing your training rather than just churning out exactly the same thing again and again. So you can um, you can see what works well and what doesn't work well. And that can either stay with us as the sort of external training professionals or that knowledge can stay within the organisation as well for use in future implementations as well. I agree with Ollie. I think, you know, the evaluation is, is really important. And I think providing them with something that they can take forward for lessons learned for other programmes afterwards, should it ever happen, is, is good. Well, that also reminds me of another point as well, is, is in any training, training programme, you, you need to build in the transfer. So you actually make sure that the, the, the knowledge or the skills go from the training room or whatever the training environment is, and then it's retained and, and taken back to the, the place of work for them to sort of carry on the best practice once, once they're back at their desks. Yeah, and that's why we always encourage the involvement of SMEs and the client as well, because, you know, once we pack up our bags and toolbox and go home, we don't want to take the knowledge with us. We want them to keep it, as you say. So, yeah, going back to the training needs analysis bit as well, I think one of the key things is is understanding what's going to work for the client in terms of what is the right, the right way of delivering this. Because, again, certain clients still want you know the old-fashioned classroom approach, which which may be absolutely appropriate, but then again, it might not be. It was something that I was reading recently was talking about the right method to be able to give people information around birds. So if you're going to go through and then talk somebody through, well, how does a bird look? 
the best way you can do that is obviously by giving them you know, a, a visual cue rather than actually describing the bed. And then similarly, if you're going to go through and then ask somebody, you know, what are the particular sort of bed song that a bed um, has, then you're going to make you're going to have them listen to it. So whilst obviously we're not teaching people how to to sort of recognise beds or bed song, the, the principle is basically the same in terms of is it going to be some classroom learning? Is it going to be e-learning? Is it going to be something, obviously in this day and age, it's going to be a lot more driven potentially by a more informal approach. So talking with the clients and the relevant people and understanding what is the appropriate sort of way forward, which is something that obviously we need to decide, but based upon the conversations that we've had, is, is absolutely key. Because if we have really great training, but it's classroom training and actually the location isn't particularly great and the environment isn't particularly great, then was there a better way of doing that? Because we don't want to be putting those blockers in because if we can keep it as, as smooth and as appropriate as possible, then it takes away you know, those, those blockers to the individual's learning. So we've mentioned classroom training, which some would consider old-fashioned. We're also using a lot more technology solutions in, within the training environment now. What are the technologies and the techniques that are hitting the spot at the moment? What are you getting excited about technology-wise in training? I like the look of some of the, the, the concepts of these digital adoption platforms. So I'm lucky enough at the moment with the client that I'm working with. It. So they, they've been quite bold, I think, and they've followed our advice and, and they've actually implemented one of these platforms. And we're only now starting to see, you know, to start to use it. Um, but even so, we can see already, even though it's very early days, we can see that it has massive amounts of potential not as a training tool in its own right, but certainly as a way of complementing other options. So complementing what, you know, what gets delivered in a classroom setting, in an informal face-to-face or remote session type setting over something like WebEx or something like that. So it's just another tool in our toolkit, if you like, but it's it's a, it's something that's, it's actually, it's quite interesting to use. And, and we're now starting to, the technology being there now and we're us starting to use it is opening up a whole new set of doors and prompting even more questions. And so we're thinking now, right, how are we going to use this? What's the best way to use this? What's the best way that we can use this new tool to present content so that we get maximum bang for the buck, if you like? So these are the, what we're calling adaptive or adoptive learning systems whereby you can be within an application and the the help comes up as you move around a screen so it'll actually if you have a task to complete it will tell you in a live environment step by step where you need to click what information you need to enter and how you move from one one step to the next yeah that's exactly it um you know and that's one of the one those are some of the benefits there that you've just talked about clive and i think there's still an element, though, as I say, that we need to understand because somebody, you know, who understands what learning, what good learning potentially is and has their learning hat on still needs to be able to understand how to get the most out of these platforms. But absolutely, the biggest um, the biggest differentiator, I think, with these new platforms over most of the other more traditional training or learning approaches is that it doesn't necessarily take you away from being productive it doesn't take you away from your day job it's a a way of complementing so you're actually learning 
as you're working, albeit perhaps at a much reduced pace, but you're still being productive as opposed to being taken away into a classroom or, you know, having to stop what you're doing to look at some sort of e-learning of some sort or to dial into a call. Obviously, if you're doing that and you're giving that your full attention, then obviously you can't be working as well. So, it, you know, it's another tool in the toolkit and it, I think it has its place. And But we're only now starting to look at it uh, and start to sort of really explore the potential of these things. Mm. I think what, one of the two of the things that really excite me are both virtual and augmented reality. I still think for, for most large-scale programmes, they probably cost too much to actually implement. But... Um, there will come a time, I think, when, when both those technologies will be uh, a lot of fun to uh, to use in a training environment. Oh, definitely. I was not directly involved. Recently did some work with, a, you know, one of the utility companies. And they were talking there, when I was talking to people in their learning team, they were talking there about having systems whereby their engineers that are out on the road when they go out to a particularly complex piece of machinery have some sort of a mobile device, some sort of a tablet, point it at the device that, that they're there to either service or maintain or fix, and then just walk around it, and then they're seeing a 3D representation of that thing in front of them on their tablet, and as they walk around, the view is following them. And then they can. it's almost as if on the tablet they're peeling back layers like an onion and they can see internal components, you know, they can click on it and it, it will tell them all about the technical specifications. It's referencing data from previous breakdowns so it's suggesting the most likely causes of problems exciting times i yeah, think that's good stuff anybody else want to add anything to that just uh, referring back to what paul was saying about the um sort of micro learning type stuff so so rather than having a one-shot all-day classroom session where where that's your one chance to learn everything you need to know about one uh, application for example if you have these kind of micro learning interventions you can um get real-time training at the point of need rather than having to cast your mind back to something that you may have done you know six months ago or a year ago on a training course you can get it sort of five minutes before you need to do it and it's it's very very much capable of being tailored exactly to a very specific task so that's kind of what we're looking at at the moment on the projects i'm doing so we've got um, a kind of mobile device enabled application and we're going to be rolling out uh, little short videos onto the devices themselves so people can get a very quick refresher on how to carry out a specific task just before they do it. I think that's a really, really powerful way of making something relevant and realistic to them for, for training rather than the sort of slightly dry, abstract classroom environment. It's really good to hear all of this because it's in line with this, you know, the new thinking of the modern learner. And we haven't really had many examples of this. And it's really great that we've got two examples with you and Paul on sort of different sorts of projects, particularly um, around learning on a mobile device. Because people want to sit and learn on the bus, don't they? They want to use that time to, to get knowledge as opposed to doing it while they're working. Yeah, it's almost the Google effect, isn't it? Starting to filter through from sort of personal computing where it's probably been kicking around now for about 10 years or so to the corporate environment, into into the workplace. People now, it, I guess the question is, you know, do, do how much knowledge do people need to retain versus how much knowledge can they get exactly at the point of need like they would do at home when they Googled something? As Ollie was saying, you know, bite-sized chunks entirely at the point of need. Do, do people need to retain knowledge or do we just need to give them the ability to get it when they need it? Yeah, 
Yeah, because if you want to understand how to use something you've just purchased, like an iPad or a new phone, what would you do? You can Google and get or do a YouTube. Can't you get a YouTube video up on something? So it's 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 like that. Yeah, social learning is is. Um, I mean, that's the first thing. I think pretty much everybody does these days is, is you, you do an internet search. You Google it, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Somebody inevitably will have put a video on YouTube showing you how to do something. So, again, programs like um, or applications like Slack that we use at work is, is another way. And we all use that pretty extensively at Capgemini. I think one thing to bear in mind, though, is that it's, it's critical to choose the right intervention for the right thing. So you have to be very careful about not kind of shoehorning at some newfangled learning method into something where it doesn't quite fit. So I'm sure there's a, there's a place for everything, but it might be that some things are still best dealt with in a classroom environment in a sort of slightly more old fashioned way. So it's just about finding the right opportunities for those. That's getting the balance right, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can again. I I agree, Ali. I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of technology for technology's sake. But it, you know, we need to think about what is right for the people that are you know on the receiving end and so on and so forth. So you know, it's just one of a, a whole host of different options, techniques. Well, that's the end of our first podcast. I hope you find some of that useful and we'll be able to incorporate some of the points we made into your training programs going forwards. For the rest of our series of podcasts, we're going to be looking at the various elements of the training life cycle, starting with training strategy. Moving on to the TNA, and then we'll do a podcast on each of design, develop, deliver, and uh, evaluate, which we think is very important. We'll also look at how you can factor training into your business as usual, post go live, plus any other topics that we think you may find useful. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for the next one. Mm-hmm.